This is The Shift Podcast. Coming up today on The Shift Daily Podcast, actor and activist Jesse Lipscomb joins The Shift to talk about his new card game designed to show the damaging truths behind everyday jokes directed at marginalized groups. It's pretty awesome stuff. Not that funny. Give it a listen. Also, former military pilots and officers are sharing UFO stories down in America. But what if they're actually aliens? We discuss all this with Greg Fish and the world of weird things. Plus, from Tokyo Live, Sir Christopher Gilbert with the International Dispatch. Welcome to the International Dispatch from our world citizen. Live from Japan, New Zealand's Chris Gilbert. It did occur to me today in conversation as we received a text message about Potato Chip Gilbert that our current <laughs> team here on the shift is not familiar with Potato Chip Gilbert. Potato Chip Gilbert. Chip Gilbert. Yeah. Yeah. I this, can't believe this theme it. song. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're, we're the OGs. Cat. Yeah, we're the OGs of um, knowing about Potato Chip Gilbert. Um, who doesn't exist yet? We don't have young potato chip Gilbert, uh, would be cat, uh, that we do not have because we live in an apartment that does not allow pets. But I do have some good news. My very good friends who live down the road from me, um, have had, uh, probably no sleep, but I'd say about six months, uh, because their cat, their new kitten has gone through more waves of heat. Uh, than the coronavirus. I think they're on their fifth or sixth wave of heat with this cat now. And uh, today, young Ron, which is the cat's name, uh, his <laughs> girl, uh, Ron took her uh, her snip-nip trip to the vet vet and got the snip-snip and uh, made everyone sleep peacefully in that household tonight for the first time in, in many a month. So, um, yeah, congratulations to Ron. You are now a woman. Uh, but Potato Chip Gilbert, not with us yet. Potato chip Gilbert. Potato chip Gilbert. Potato chip Gilbert. Yeah, that's the potato chip Gilbert song. You remember it well. Yeah, I did good there. Um, thank you to yeah. Doug who texted it in earlier. The International Dispatch is all the way across uh, the Pacific Ocean to Tokyo, which mm. has been in the news. I know that Ryan was sort of asking this question before we got on the air. If I heard it properly, I was lying on the floor um, at the time. And uh, I think the question was, hey, Chris, in your learning to speak Japanese, have you got yourself in, in any situations where you said something dreadfully wrong or swore at people uh, by saying the wrong word? Um, I've never accidentally sworn at anybody. I think uh, my main thing, which I live in fear of every time, is saying something and then just the silence that follows it. So I could be like, oh, yeah, that's... That that's great, right? I also uh, have a have a fish for that. <laughs> exactly. That that right. is what I that is what I, I live in fear of, which is just that silence of what, what what did this person just say? I will tell a quick story, which is um, there is a a word in Japanese which is irashimase, uh, which you'll hear a lot when you come here. Uh, you'll when if you walk into any store, any supermarket, department store, ramen shop, you'll hear Edashai Masai, which means welcome, pretty much. Welcome to the store. And and they say it like this. They go, Edashai And so you'll, you'll hear that a lot in Tokyo, especially. Um, 
When I first moved here uh, many years ago in 2015, before I lived in Canada even, I had never heard this word before. Um, and I walked into lots of stores and I heard Ereshaimase. And uh, one day I walked into a ramen shop, maybe my very first week in Tokyo, and the uh, the owner of the ramen shop said Ereshaimase. And I smiled at them and I waved my hand and right back to them, I also said Ereshaimase. <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> so effectively what i said was they said to me welcome to my store and i was like welcome to my store you know like just claiming ownership straight away so well, that's probably oh, the most embarrassed good. i've ever been that's yeah. good i think they're pretty forgiving considering you have a newly new zealand accent and long blonde hair uh they might they might clue into the fact that maybe um you're from another place just saying they might Something is probably uh, going to give me away there. Um, yeah, it's true. Um, we we're like uh, the, it's a different breed of of foreigner that lives in Tokyo that lives in Tokyo compares to visits in Tokyo. Like we rely on the visitors to because if we make mistakes, then we can just pretend that we're just a tourist. But with no tourists here, people kind of oh. expect better of us, you know. And so uh, the pressure's on to. To, to try and blend a little bit more harmoniously into the social fabric, um, what is left of it. Uh, I, I guess I heard Japan in, in the bulletin just then. Um, I guess you guys have been covering the Olympics a bit this week. Yeah, there's been a little conversation here and there about whether yeah. it should and who's saying it shouldn't happen. Um, well, I'll tell you something that came across my uh, radar today, um, which is that uh, in central Tokyo, we have Yoyogi Park, which I can't remember if I mentioned, but uh, it's, it's like Central Park in New York. It's a huge park. And people like in April, they like to go there and sit under the cherry blossom trees and have a picnic, which is called Hanami, which literally translates to Hana and Mi, which is flower viewing. Mm. Um, so they have a flower viewing picnic. This year, because of COVID-19, supposedly they blocked uh, the entire interior of the park off. So people would not congregate there. I thought that was stupid because people force people to congregate, you know, in a more like concentrated mass in the outskirts of the park. But they blocked it off regardless, and it means that the interior of the park has sort of been like rewilded. There's like turtles and bunnies and butterflies and long grass and stuff, and the park kind of become more wild again. However, uh, what I have currently learned is that this plan because the park is still blocked off long after hanami season cherry, uh, cherry blossom season you can't go into the like the central park of tokyo and the reason that i have learned only recently is because they plan to effectively cut off the branches of uh several of the trees uh and turn it into a uh downtown olympics spectator viewing like area oh, where no. you can sit in the park and watch the olympics on a big screen and they're expecting um despite the best efforts to keep you know a couple of thousand people out of the park for flower viewing thirty-five thousand people to congregate in this downtown park to watch the olympics in the middle of a pandemic which i'm not sure if you read the headlines is somewhat out of control here at the moment wow. um so i i don't really understand the logic of that it's a bit terrifying it's a bit annoying and uh, i can confirm all the reports this week uh to finish my rant that um people here are just sick of it we don't want the olympics uh and and we i most people including myself 
we just want it to be over. We well, <laughs> we just want it to be over. We just like uh, yeah. Can, can we just get the stuff behind us already so we can all get vaccinated and move on with our lives? So wow. Yeah. Well, that's interesting perspective because there are so many. There's so many conversations about does even Tok- the people of Tokyo want to have it? So I think that sounds no. pretty um, pretty clear, hey? Yeah, the the answer is no. And uh, like I I've been reading um, you know Associated Press articles and stuff, which like the people of Japan don't even want the Olympics. And like no, we don't. We want to be vaccinated just like everybody else. Uh, Cong- bringing you know ten or eleven thousand of the world's you know people here and to constant you know and, and to come into one city. To travel around in cars and buses and, and Olympic vehicles and stuff, and um, the idea of that, honestly, right now with uh, the case numbers as high as they are, and not only the case numbers being high, but the vaccine being slow to be rolled out, like incredibly slow to uh, to be rolled out, is um, somewhat terrifying. Uh, so uh, I plead uh, personally, a personal plea uh, to the uh, the International Olympic Committee, if you're listening. Please cancel it. Please, please, please. Cool. That's it. I'm done. That, that was my bit. There you go. Pretty clear. Yeah. All right. The International yeah. Dispatch is live from Tokyo. Uh, Sir Christopher Gilbert. He's from New Zealand. He worked here on the shift in Canada and then moved to Tokyo when uh, I offered him a full-time job. He's like, yeah, see ya. Um and that's where he is. It's not quite what happened, but it's pretty close. <laughs> it's pretty close. <laughs> All right, so let's take a little tour around the yeah. world, Chris. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. If you had a comment, go ahead. But let's take a tour around no, the world. No, no. Yeah, no, let's um, – okay, do you remember a uh, – just lightening things up a lot. Do you remember a YouTube video, probably maybe the very first – well, well, okay, let's ask this question. What is the very first viral YouTube video you all remember? I just well, I do remember the cat videos. Like the cat videos, like any cat video was the. That's really what I remember. Probably Grumpy Cat. Anything to do with Grumpy, Grumpy Cat? There's more memes. One. Grumpy Cat. More memes, but yeah. still. Uh, I'm gonna throw it back even more. Numa Numa. Do you remember that video, Chris, of the guy sitting in his chair, lip syncing to the song and just pumping his arms to the left and right? That's um, like did, did he? Was he a younger man wearing glasses? Yet he was also paradised in the South Park episode where they talk about people who get viral on oh, the yeah. internet. Oh yeah. yeah. yeah no, that that is yeah. that's that's a deep cut for sure. Um what about you, Brendan? I don't know. Maybe the lightsaber. Um guy with the lightsaber. Yeah, the lightsaber yeah. guy. I'm trying yeah, to think. That was a, a long time ago, but Oh wait, wait, wait. No, you're triggering something. The lightsaber. Like I remember something about lightsabers, but I can't remember exactly what it is. But there was like, did he just do lightsaber fights? Is that what he did? Uh, yeah, he just he he just whipped a lightsaber around. He he wasn't particularly oh God, good at it. How simple the world was. <laughs> like how easily impressed we all were back then. You know, so mm-hmm. there, there's a there's the one of the very early viral videos. I think YouTube was launched in two thousand four, well, maybe two thousand five. I want to say, and there was a viral video from two thousand and seven called. Charlie bit my finger. Uh, let's just refresh our memories. It is uh, a young boy, maybe five years old, and a baby sitting on his lap. The young boy puts his finger in the baby's mouth. The baby bites his finger. Uh, it's very hilarious. Uh, Brendan, can you play the, the clip of that, please? The first one. <laughs> Charlie. Charlie bit me. Ah. 
That's a viral video. <laughs> and it was too. Like video. it was everywhere. Ryan is still cracking up on the Zoom call. I could see Ryan listening to Charlie bit my finger and just like rolling oh, around in his chair. Repeat, yeah. Ouch, Charlie. Charlie. That really hurt. What? I love Why? It. I see I like like every viral video kind of has like some kind of hook to it, at least now, but what is the hook to Charlie bit my finger? Is it the ouch? No. Is it the it's Charlie? The, it's the wholesomeness. It's just kinda you watch it and it's like, oh, that's cute. Little kids with it's, an it's accent's not... always cute, right? That too. I, you I know. just feel like we were so easily impressed back then. You know, the world must have been such a wholesome, honest, earnest place. You know, it's the pre-Trump era, it's pre-pandemic, it's pre-financial crash, two thousand eight. Like, the world must have been just so much less cynical to to have <laughs> that be a viral video. But that was fourteen years ago. Um, the news about uh, Charlie bit my finger is that it has been sold as a um, an NFT, and I, I'm sorry, I, I am just like you know millennials are getting old, and like it's a non fungible token, which I totally I'm not gonna lie, I don't know what that is. I mm-hmm. I've seen it around in the news, and I've read about it a whole bunch, and it's it's but um, Ryan, do you, do you think you could like describe what a non fungible token is in like ten seconds? It's like selling the digital rights to a piece of content that was created online. See, well, that, see, I understand. Why can't people just say that instead of making me feel stupid? You know, I right. read non-fungible token and I'm like, I, why am I so old? And I hear Ryan say it's selling digital rights. And I, I actually understand that. Why can't you just say that in, in the news, news people? Um, but Charlie bit my finger has been sold. The digital rights to Charlie has bit my finger has uh, sold for um, <clears throat> seven hundred and sixty thousand dollars. Sheesh! Fourteen years many, on, like no one, yeah, it's a lot. How many views does the original have? Eight hundred and eighty-three million views. Oh, so they've wow. made a couple okay. of bucks. Yeah. Yeah, um, but the thing that I really like about this is that four years ago, uh, it's uh, they did a ten-year anniversary video on some news network, uh, and they interviewed the dad of Charlie and Harry, who's the older boy. And I swear to God, you th- you would think that he's just made the Mona Lisa, like you would think he's just won the Man Booker Prize, like the way he's talking about um, Charlie bit my finger. Uh, uh, Brenda, can we play the second clip, please? Ten years on, how does it feel to have the, the, the famous, the famous video? Actually, actually, feels great, really. I mean, we've seen, we know how we've influenced people's lives. How actually we've changed people's lives. Um, the people who have watched it, the people who have communicated with us and, and spoken to us. Um, it's great, and and to feel part of that and know that you created something which has had that impact is wonderful, actually. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm just so happy to have put something out into the world which can give back, you know, like I can actually just give back to the community and all the people out there who have, you know, quite honestly supported me through all these years. And, uh, you know, it, it's worth £760,000, but that's, that's by the by. It's just all the good we've done, you know, with Charlie bit my finger. Come on. Um, we got paid. I sold my kids to the internet, and they reportedly had made $100,000 US by 2011. So he's um, he's still selling his kids. Okay, so that that uh, excellent point, Shane. Um, 
Uh, as part of the sale, let me find the bit in the story here. Here we go. As part of the sale, um, uh, the guy, the dad, told ABC News that they plan to meet with the winner of the uh, NFT, the C one hundred and sixty thousand dollar purchaser. They're going to. He's going to take his adult sons. Well, maybe not adult, but one of them is at least going to college, and the other one, you know, is a late teenager now. Well, we're going to uh, meet with the winner to reenact the video in person. So he's going to take his two kids to oh make God. them do Charlie bit my finger. Fourteen years later, it's fully grown boys to this guy who just who is like just throwing money at them. Hmm. Wonder if he also Which, has puppies to share. It's weird. It's 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 not great. Um, I'm not a fan of the guy. And uh, can we can we just play that last clip of of the dad, uh, Brendan? How much money has the video made us? So, I think I was quoted a couple of years ago saying that if, if things progressed and, and the way things moved, you know, a million pounds would be a realistic expectation of how much the video would make us. And, you know, that's, that's a figure that's worth holding on to. I like that. That's a figure that's worth holding on to. That's how much my children are worth to me. Well, maybe a million pounds one day. You know, if I can sell this video, I can exploit my children for a million pounds. Well, he's probably made almost a million already, and I have no problem with him selling the video and the rights to the video. It's the after stuff that's weird about it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, like absolutely weird. And all, I, I, I have no – anyone can sell their, their dumb YouTube video, but I will say uh, that if you want to see Charlie Bit My Finger, get in quick uh, because it is going to be removed from YouTube now that it has been sold. So, uh, yeah, get, get your Charlie Bit My Finger kicks copies. in now. Yeah. There'll be yeah, black dis- label, white label pirate copies available in a back alley in New York City. Yeah, digitize them, put them on on um, put them on uh, you know like flash drives and drop them into random mailboxes. Spread their seed throughout your city because Charlie bit my finger will no longer be available for uh, free viewing. Uh, you'll have to pay for the rights of it. So who knows what this this new owner will make you charge for it? Um, oh. Uh, how, yeah, uh, how much time we got left, Shane? Because I've got a couple more, yeah. but you know. yeah, we can do another one for sure. Yeah, okay. Um, I've got one that is very uh, specific to New Zealand. Um, so there, there was a a, uh, a friend. Okay, let me tell you, a friend of mine messaged me out of the blue this morning. Uh, he's a, a high school friend, and he was like, "Hey, here's a blast for the past for you. Here's a trip down memory lane." And he linked me this story, which was honestly for a New Zealander just um, a gift uh, to receive. And as re- it concerns a stump man. A fake stunt man uh, called uh, Randy Campbell, and the headline for this story is "TV Stunt Man Chases Stolen Guitar uh, by Riding a BMW Bonnet as It Rams a Police Car." So, how nice. can I not talk about this? Um, Randy Campbell was a fake uh, stunt man on a TV show in the late '90s, early 2000s called Back of the Y which was very, very geared to people my age at that time, like 14 years old. Um, yeah, so let, let, let's hear a, a clip of what Back to the Y sounded like. Uh, Brendan, can you play the Randy Campbell clip, please? Tonight, New Zealand's greatest daredevil stuntman, Randy Campbell, will attempt to stunt so stupid he'll probably end up dead. It's a dangerous stunt no matter how you look at it, especially with an angry monkey to contend with, and Randy's crew are making sure that this ape is as angry as possible. Come on, do something about it. Randy is away! Suddenly, the stunt goes horribly wrong! 
Randy is badly miscalculated. The leap, the landing, and how to ride a bike. And within moments, the dangerously out of control burning monkey is on the loose. Yeah, so that's very nostalgic for me. It's it's very low grade television uh, back in the day, but it, it was it was cheap yucks. Um, and you know we were kids, we loved it. Um, but Randy Campbell, uh, his real name is Mister Step. Chris Step is his name. Uh, and this story is kind of insane. So. Uh, a former TV stuntman uh, chasing his stolen guitar wound up on the bonnet of a fleeing vehicle traveling at speed as it crashed into a police car in central Auckland, New Zealand. It was the end of a four-hour crime spree that began on nine, at 9 p.m. on February 17th with the burglary uh, of his apartment on Mercury Lane. And this is a story, but it develops, so bear with me here. Step, familiar to many as the stuntman Randy Campbell from the 90s TV show Back of the Why. He'd returned home after attending a gig to discover his precious vintage uh, guitar had been stolen. He had bought it in Paris. Uh, he loved it, and so he was devastated. Uh, his neighbor had confronted the burglar, uh, who had offered to sell him Step's guitar before fleeing. Now, this is where it gets kind of crazy. At about midnight on February 18, their two offenders had arrived at a hostel. One of them stripped naked before entering the reception area. While he was naked, an employee tried to call the police, but the naked man snatched the phone and yelling, pushed the employee into a room. The offender punched the man and briefly choked him before he was able to free himself. The offender then dressed himself and left the building. The hostile employee followed and persuaded him to return his phone, and then he then used that phone to call the police. Is everyone with me so far? Yeah, it sounds like one. It sounds like something O.J. Simpson did in Vegas, but okay. It's it's so yeah. So they steal a guitar, they leave, they go to a hostel, they get naked, they take a phone, they dress themselves again, uh, they give the phone back, and then the police are called on them using that same phone. At half past midnight, the offender carjacked a taxi waiting at a red light. Uh, during the drive to downtown Auckland, the man tried to take hold of the steering wheel. And he and the taxi driver struggled for the control of the car. The offender then struck the taxi driver viciously until he stopped the car and fled, which is not pleasant. The offender drove for a short distance before crashing the taxi into a large skip bin on Turner Street. Oh, what do you call skip bins in Canada? Um, they're, they're the large blue things that, you know, uh, like enormous rubbish bins. What do you call it? Like dumpsters? Oh, dumpster. Like a huge, it's, it's huge. Like you, you know, like you people go yeah, diving it's a dumpster. in them for scraps. Yes. Yeah, it's like a big we, dumpster. It's like when they're on fire. It it looks a lot like this show. We call them skip bins. Uh, yeah. So he he uh, crashed his car into uh, a, a skip bin, um, and then he uh, he fled away. Uh, at twelve fifty a.m., a man parked in a silver BMW on Derby Street was waiting for his fast food order. When the offender got in front of, uh, got in the front passenger seat with him, fearing for his life, the man drove the offender to a park, handed over the car keys, and then fled on foot to a police station. Both offenders then returned to the lane where they were previously uh, present to return the stolen BMW. This story is, and I just can't follow this at all. At one a.m., Step, the main figure in the story, whose guitar was stolen was standing outside his flat, contemplating the loss of his beloved guitar, 
Well, his neighbor nudged him and said, hey, look, that's them, the thieves. They've come back and stolen BMW. When I thought my guitar was gone, some friends witnessed me bawling my eyes out, he had said. It was a heartbreaking experience, but when the burglars came back, from that moment, I knew I had to stall those guys until the cops got there. So when he refused to pay any money for the stolen guitar, which the offenders offered to sell back to him, they started driving uh, back down towards the street. He jumped on the bonnet. They rode towards a police car while riding on the bonnet of the car. The BMW smashed into a police car. They were arrested. End of the story. <laughs> very straightforward. It, very straightforward. Very clear. And I, um, it still, it still sounds like something that OJ Simpson did in Vegas. I, it's or Super Dave Osborne. One of those uh, also came in from Dwayne. It sounds like something Super Dave Osborne would do. You probably don't know Super Dave from your oh, lack of time in North America. Who is that? Uh, he was like that. He was a fake stuntman. He was a comedian, but he did all kinds of stunts, and it was pretty good stuff. So, well, well, if, if Dave Osborne ever gets his guitar stolen, um, you know, the fake stuff might actually come in handy one day because he can ride the bonnet of a stolen BMW for a while and get his beloved guitar back. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. What a beautiful story. <laughs> I, um, it, it's it's bizarre. I, I, the bit that really confused me is was when they stripped naked. Um, and then just attack someone in a hostel randomly in the middle of a story oh, and then put their clothes back do. on. As you do. Um, I mean, it is a hostel. I, I, I couldn't read that this morning and, and not think, you know, like, I, I must share this with the wonderful people of Canada because uh, who doesn't need to know this? Well, who also has not stayed in a hostel and seen somebody naked in a lobby? Also a thing that happens quite regularly. Um, yeah. <laughs> thank you very much. Potato chip Gilbert. Potato chip Gilbert. Potato chip Gilbert. All the way from Tokyo, and we will get an update again next week on the tone of the Olympics 2021 plus one, but we can't delay it to 2022 because there already is one of those, and that would be a branding problem. Uh, thanks for very much for being here, Chris. It's great to see you, buddy. It's great to see you guys, too, and I will see you again next week. This is The Shift Podcast. A few months ago, I introduced you to uh, a gentleman who I would like to say is one of my new friends. His name is Jesse Lipscomb, and Jesse does uh, so many things. This is a guy you cannot put him in a box, partly because he's large and partly because of the fact that he does so many things. Uh, I invite Jesse to come back here on The Shift and chat with us some more. Jesse, how are you? Uh, I'm well. It's good to be back. Uh, I appreciate you having me. Yeah. So, uh, and I'm glad you share some time. You've been so busy. There's three particular things to, to chat about today. Number one, you told us a little bit about it when we had you on last time and we were talking about, uh, your board game. Is it a board, it's board game is fair enough. A card game, card game, card yeah. game, yeah. Conversation starter, same thing. Yeah. And so I, you know, in following you, like I do on social media, I'd seen that you've been doing a bunch more work and you had a Kickstarter campaign to fund this new thing. And uh, and to make sure that it got out to the people because it was a great idea and it was an idea of taking conversations that are hard. This is this is my summary of Jesse Lipscomb taking conversations that we think are hard and making sure that they're just conversations and taking conversations that we don't understand can be hard because we're just throwing them out there kind of I don't want to say recklessly, but naively. Naively? I think you can say those together actually because they are they're they're reckless because they definitely have the potential to cause harm and yeah. and they come out of naivete for sure. Often. Oh, there it is. 
Yeah. I think it's just Indasis, really. I liked your version too. Really? I think I made up my word though. So (laughs) yours is probably better. Um, So tell us about what you're up to with that. Is it That's Not Funny? Is that exact? It's called uh, Not That Funny. Not That Funny. That's right. And it was, um, you know, I I, I guess an iteration from the Make It Awkward movement, the work that we do in in, uh, creating everyday activists and trying to create safer spaces for marginalized individuals. But a lot of the discussions around that dealt with words and and two things, words and the work, I put in quotes. So we hear people often saying, all right, well, you know, you have to do the work. Uh, and there's a lot of confusion around what the work is. And, you know, well-meaning individuals, potential allies and allies are trying to figure out how to be a part of the change and be a part of the movement and be like an ambassador and, and a real ally. And so what we did is we took a lot of the questions and at the end of the day, they were asking for tools. You know, can we get some tools so that we can walk through this space a little bit more confidently and uh, understand that, you know, if we do step in and see something and say something that we're saying the things that actually matter, uh, we're saying things correctly that have historical context. And so all of that we put into a game that plays kind of like Cards Against Humanity, where we've created hundreds of situations um, that can be, you know, racist, sexist, ableist, uh, and then we've created hundreds of responses uh, that can be funny, uh, that can be not that funny, but, you know, and, and also give uh, reasons on why historically uh, those things cause harm. So at the end of the day, you play the game, you have some laughs, it's leisure and resilience. Uh, we're trying to find ways to, uh, you know, create a better space through play. So where can everyone go to find out some more stuff about it? Because it sounds like it's a great way what I've learned in in this sort of bias conversation about all aspects of life, not only race, but I think that's the cool part that people don't often understand is that once you start looking at bias as bias and all of the different ways it's present in our lives, you start to really recognize that, holy cow, there's a lot of things that are going on that I don't realize. And, you- um, you know, so how, do, how people go learn more about that, because it, it as much as you are doing this about race and it's been driven sort of that way, at least that's where it started into all these other aspects of social cause. Um, you know, it really is, to me, uh, a good tool to look in the mirror and just be self-aware, frankly. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you're, you're, you're right. But one correction I'll say is uh, from the very beginning, since 2016, Make It Awkward has always been an anti-discrimination movement. It actually okay. was never centered on race. It's just that race was the catalyst uh, for the movement to occur because it was an incident that happened to myself. But it's always been a platform to elevate marginalized individuals across the board. So whatever it is, whether it's your sexual identity orientation, whether it's, you know, your how much you weigh, how old you are, race, sexism, etc., um, so this game is also that, uh, and you know, that's, that's the hope, right? Uncovering the macro and microaggressions in everyday language, uh, allowing people to kind of level up so they can just work better in everyday situations. That's the thing is that they, these things happen all the time. Uh, and for the most part, people are just, uh, unaware that it can cause real damage, even things like locker room talk. And boys will be boys. Those those kind of comments that happen, the sexist comments, and like there's real statistics on those who participate them, participate in them, and then actually participate in things surrounding rape culture. Like there's stats for all this stuff. So what we're trying to do is at the very beginning level, how we talk to each other, uh, to make that a little bit more of an empathetic choice when you understand the impact of your words. Uh, so important, and and again, it always brings me back to this. One of my favorite places to look always is. Uh, I've always stood by the belief that 
and this is why this conversation matters to me for all the shift heads who are listening is that the reason why this conversation matters to me is because I believe and I've seen clearly that the way we treat women in our lives gets fixed automatically when men learn how to speak to men and when men can share with men and exercise those muscles all day, every day with men, share feelings, share experiences, and stop that boys will be boys expectation, if you will, it automatically opens up the next step, of course, which is the people around us, the women in our lives or whoever, uh, whether it's your mom, your sister, your partner, and you, your habits have formed differently in all these conversations. So I do believe that when men learn how to talk to men, our relations with women change automatically. Yes, you're so right. I mean, and that exact thing can be mirrored across the board uh, in the same sense when white people talk to white people about how they speak about uh, black people, uh, indigenous people, when they're doing that work, quote unquote, the work when people aren't around, that's when we see real change happen. That's when there's a, there's a proper shift Shane, that's what that's when those things occur. And I didn't even answer your question because you said, where can people go? It's an easy one. You go to notthatfunny.store. That's our website. Uh, you can click pre-order if you want to order it. Uh, it'll take you to our Kickstarter. It's already 100% funded, which is great. So it's yeah, at this stage, you're just pre-ordering the game and it's going to be happening. But the website also offers a lot of other things. We have a 75-page glossary of just all of the terms that, that exist in our world that are often constantly changing. People question words like uh, a, a person was a slave or an enslaved person uh, or why can't I say Indian uh, or when can I, you know, what's this racism definition, all of that stuff. We uh, curated a ton of things from obviously the web as well as meetings with different cultures and try to be interculturally uh, fluent and in creating these definitions that are up to date. So we have that just as a free resource for individuals who just want to look and see, uh, you know, what's happening right now and what words to use. So we're just trying to, you know, clean up, and set straight our language and style of talking to each other. And I think that'll uh, do a lot for how we interact in the future. I love that. I had a friend of mine ask me about, um, uh, you know, how would you describe your friend? And if I'm looking at you at our Zoom call right now, um, my friend had said, well, is he, is he your black friend? Is he the black guy in the corner? How would you describe him? How If you had to point him out in a crowd, how would you describe him? And I said to him, I said, well, he's the guy in a blue hoodie with black hair. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you wouldn't say he's your black friend? And I was like, well, why would I? He's the guy with a blue hoodie and black hair. That's the same that I would say if the person's in a red shirt and a hat. Like, And so it was an interesting perspective for me to look at that and go, well, okay, well, yeah, but I, is that really a thing? And I guess it is sort of an automatic habit of things that – that we're talking about here. That's I mean, just the automatic part. You're right, though. In your example, you say, why wouldn't you say he's your black friend? Uh, well, that that makes the assumption that you only have one, which, by the way, that, that then there's a problem. If you can say there's my – you need to ex- uh, expand your horizons of your, your cultural cultures of your friendship. <laughs> if you're like, oh, that's my black friend. Like, well, you should get some more because that guy's not a monolith for all black people. Well, but yeah, not, I, It's not a quota. <laughs> I know, it's not like I have my three, which yeah. is pretty good in St. Albert, I would imagine. But, yeah. yeah. Now you are up in uh, just outside Edmonton, and I and I have to ask the question because I do know in your family you own a lot of Oilers jerseys. Uh, how's the tone of the family today? Uh, uh, you know what? Here's the thing. Of course, as disappointing as it was, because my my wife Julie and I were not going to watch this last game uh, four just. Because of the heartache, we're like, if they get to game five, we're all over it. We said that. We were on our, like, on 
it was it's edges of our bed. We weren't on seats, but like screaming and yelling. I thought we were going to watch it. Like, I don't even care. I don't care. We couldn't stop watching. I got to say, that was a very entertaining way to get swept, though. Three, four overtimes in three games. Yeah. Was, and I think what the Oilers are trying to do, so this is me as an eternal optimist, I think they were trying to really stretch out the series, all of the series, because maybe if we get our act together and things open up, we could have had fans. And I think they were thinking too much about us and not enough about the game. It's very positive. Yeah. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm, I, because I live in Calgary and I'm a Flames fan and my team did not even make it, um, the difference is, is that Oilers fans are eternal fans, right? It's like, you can do it, guys. I believe in you. And Flames fans are so fickle. Um, everybody um, is the coach, and everybody yeah. should be the GM in Calgary because yeah, Calgary yeah. Flames have about a million general managers. Right, right, and, right. And Oilers fans have maybe 100,000 general managers, but 900,000 fans. That's true. Oh, and another difference with the Calgary and Edmonton, maybe, I don't know if it's everyone, I know it's me for sure, I've noticed, Calgary wants to hate Edmonton. Like, so if they're not in, they want everyone to beat Edmonton. Whereas I feel like Edmonton's like, well, if we're not in, Calgary's the closest city. Let's cheer for them now. Like, yeah. it's like proximity fans. So basically what I'm saying is we're just nicer and kinder people than Calgary. Well, yeah, then I'll introduce you to my friend Amber because Amber lives in Edmonton. And every time I go see her, she introduces me as, this is Shane. He's from Calgary. It's the second thing that she says about me. So I don't know if that's accurate. She's proud. She's what? She, that's the second thing. She's proud of you for being from Calgary. Yeah, I think she's more proud of, of that she's from Edmonton. But um, fun either way. I'm sorry about your team, man, because it was fun to watch. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, uh, your series from Netflix also mm-hmm. re-upped, and um, that's coming out. Because uh, tell tell us about that. Because that's only a couple weeks away now. Yeah, that's right. June 17th on Netflix, an original Netflix series called Black Summer. It is a uh, it is a zombie apocalypse-esque post-zombie. It's like at the very beginning of a zombie apocalypse when nobody knows what a zombie is. It just happens out of nowhere. And you get dropped into this story without even knowing any backstory about the characters. You get dropped in in real time and get to experience it from those point of views, which is really... I think unique and special uh, as it doesn't take time to tell you who they were. Cause it doesn't matter actually. In a time like that, if you were a doctor, a nice person, whatever, everything's erased and you get to, you basically are a survivalist and whatever you bring to you uh, becomes what matters. So it's more this idea of humanity and how we band together or not. It uh, doesn't take a lot of time to create relationships or even eat or talk but it's like survival, survival, survival. I was a giant fan of season one and then uh, had the opportunity to be, um, you know, a, uh, an integral part of season two. I, I can say only so much. I'm sure there's something in my contract that says I can't tell you a lot, but yeah. I can tell you it's worth the watch for sure. Um, and you don't have to like look for me. That's what I'll say. Okay. It's, yeah, 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 yeah. But it's really, really exciting. Some of the proudest work for sure that I've done, hardest work, physically without a doubt um and i'm really excited to see how they put it together it was the first show where i've ever had the camera op being basically like your scene partner the amount of action that has to happen and choreography and jumping and sprinting but also the cameraman's doing it with you so when you watch this show just keep in mind that there's somebody with a camera the whole time and every scene and that that will change your whole idea of how this thing was done it was quite remarkable I've always been a fan of downhill skiing. 
mm-hmm. when the camera people do that and you realize that there's that camera angle right in front of them and there's a guy with a camera on his shoulder going backwards, backwards. as fast as the Olympians going forwards. I, unbelievable, actually. Isn't I know. amazing? Yeah. That's so yeah. good. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Jesse oh, Lipscomb. Great. Uh, is an actor, he does uh, music, he's an activist, uh, he's up in Edmonton, and he's a friend of the shift here. And uh, I enjoy our time here thoroughly. So music, too, is also on your uh, long list of things that your wife puts up with about you. <laughs> that might be the most accurate statement you've see- said ever that we've ever talked, because it's so real. She does put up with me. She knows me and knew who I was from the beginning. But I think it's a different thing to live in it every single day. Like, all right, so you, you're making a movie today. You're writing a book right now. There's also an album you're doing. And and that, and that, I'm just in it so deep. And tomorrow could be something completely different where I'm shooting in, who knows, man, the tip of Finland, right? It could happen any day. So, yes, she does put up with it and support it and is a big fan, as I am of her and her brilliance. But, yes, music uh there's an album that i have been you know working on slowly over the last uh mostly over the pandemic a uh, couple of songs pr- prior to it um and i'm starting to drop a single every couple of weeks starting at the end of may uh and uh yeah i'm pretty excited about it i got uh the three songs i'll give you a quick little idea the very first single that i dropped and i'm re-releasing is called running and it's like a relationship song soul gospel then i have one called the valley which i think is really special it's about amber valley so that's the all black settlers in uh, uh in alberta southern alberta and then shiloh baptist church is a church literally two blocks from where i live i'm looking at it right now um where the people from amber valley came and they couldn't worship in the churches that were all white so they created their own church called shiloh baptist church but they basically keep Amber Valley, uh, like the idea alive. So every time I see that, so that's what the song's about, about Amber Valley and how those from Shiloh Baptist Church are keeping that name alive. And then uh, one of the ones which I've shared with you, it's called Don't Knock Me Out. Uh, and this is just what about, uh, it start, the idea came from a past relationship that got a little fiery. But more than anything, it's this idea of just like, how much can a person take? Uh, and, and I'll take as much as I can for the greater good, as long as I don't get knocked out by the, the effort. And uh, that's a very fun one. I got my uncle, Brett Miles, one of the greatest saxophonists uh, on it with me. And he sounds very, it's just, he's so good. And it's, um, I like that song. I was jamming it in the car today like it wasn't mine. So I'm excited. Oh, that's always a good sign because most artists could turn on their music. They're like, yeah, that's, we should tweak the production and remix it and send yeah. us out, right? Like you can never yeah. let it go. You're right. Catalyst Records, they make they make they handle that so well. I couldn't even give a suggestion that they hadn't thought of. So that's nice too to to be with a, a, a strong strong production team. Very cool. Uh, his name is Jesse Lipscomb. There are so many things going on. Uh, keep in mind that you can go to uh, the website and you can um, get involved in everything that goes on. What's the website again for the store? Not that funny dot store. You can go there right now. Boom. Pre orders happening. You get your game into the summer um, yeah pretty excited about it. well i just think that, i mean how great would it be if just if one situation only one where you're like huh didn't know that was there i would be surprised if there is a person that doesn't learn at least one as a creator of a game as an activist i today i learned three more just editing them again uh it's there's i've learned so much playing creating this game uh, and this is somebody who does this work, uh, you know, semi part time, um, I guess, full time because I'm always black and I'm always in public. But, <laughs> but other than that, like, you know, 
like it was a concerted effort, concerted effort. I, uh, I would do it semi-part-time uh, and I learn stuff from it all the time. So I'm really excited for that. And it's such a non-evasive way to learn very awkward and uncomfortable conversations that often are easier to just not have. And doing it in a leisure setting with people you have rapport with, I think make the learning a little bit easier. The work. The work <laughs> is one of those things that we don't realize we've already started. Many people we hear, let's do the work or you need to do the work, but the work has already started. You got to give yourself that grace, the grace of the fact that it might've been two years ago. It might've been a month ago. It might've been five years ago. When you get to a certain place where you're like, whoa, I've actually made progress. And you look backwards, you realize that the, the work has been going on. You're already doing the work. You just have to embrace the work and allow it to be a thing. Sometimes you have to step deeper into places where you're a little bit more shy to step into. And I just wanted to offer everybody that do the work is already happening for you. You have to surrender yourself to the fact that the work is in front of you. It's whether you choose to step into it or not. It's not yeah. something you need to seek out. It's yeah, right you're there. Right. You're right. And the only, the only thing to ever maybe uh, shake your head and self-disappointment for is complacency. Because mm -hmm. if you're making moves and asking questions, you're right. You're that you're actually doing the work, and the there's no real arrival place. You don't arrive like I'm all done the work. That's mm -hmm. the that it's almost like happiness. I find same thing. Like you know, I I don't arrive at happy. I find happy places and try to keep them going. And the same thing with the work. You you do more and more and learn more, and it's ebb and flows with how rewarding and how taxing it is. But yeah, I would agree. You it. got doing the work. So uh, with that everybody uh, who listens to the shift can know that the work is happening and step into the work and embrace the work and let the work be a part of your everyday. And that's kind of what's Jesse's proposing with, yeah, um, I would say so. don't funny. be afraid to do more work though. Cause the BIPOC community, I appreciate that. But uh, yes, you are doing the work. More is good. More is good. Cause I at the end it. of the day, most of us are late. So let's just get going. Yeah, that is so incredibly true. Um, that's for sure. Jesse Lipscomb. Thank you very much, sir. It's great to see your face. Yeah, you too, Shane. Thanks. It's the Shift Podcast. Welcome, Welcome to the world of weird things with Greg Fish. Now, Greg is normally on the West Coast, and uh, that's where uh, he spends most of his time. I'm curious, Greg, um, with some of the things that are going on. You don't, I don't want you to disclose uh, what's happening in your in your life right now, but um, you have been around airports lately, haven't you? Yes, I have. And so in Canada, there's still lots of restrictions, lots of lockdowns. So I thought if you could share just as an American who travels in America or has traveled in America, what was the experience like for you getting uh, getting out and about? It actually wasn't that bad. It's just lots of masks and make sure that you're adhering to different quarantine rules if you're from states that are having fairly high positivity rates. Um, but otherwise, it's it's really not terrible and you know when it comes to wearing masks on planes i've always been a fan because uh, i'm just not into getting people's colds <laughs> that's really what it is yeah that's fair um do you have to wear your mask on the flight yes and you mm. get fined very heavily if you do not with the fines continually escalating it's now up to ten thousand dollars if you are unruly and refusing to wear your mask which is yes a fair bit of money and they're very very serious about it interesting hey eh? um yeah okay so it's, it's kind of the same it's kind of the same as they're doing it here where um you have to wear it from the minute you walk in the airport to when you walk out of the airport you can't take your mask off unless you're having a drink that's basically it 
Yep, absolutely. Same same exact rule. And if you're having a drink, it's just you took a sip and you put your mask back on. That's all there's to it. Interesting. All right. Okay. So it's not that it's not that crazy. It's not that different, I suppose. Uh, very interesting perspective. Okay, the world of weirdthings.com. It's a blog. It's a podcast. There are all kinds of different things that are on there, and it is about weird things. Now, we shared last week when Greg was off with Spaced Out Radio some conversation around the aliens. This, uh, from the perspective of Spaced, uh, from Spaced Out Radio is, you know, the government and releasing all the info and da 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 da. Greg's perspective on the aliens is, we are effed <laughs> if they're here. And uh, let's talk about it. Where are we going with the aliens and all the UFOs, Greg? Well, first of all, spoiler alert. Uh, second of all, uh, one of the things that, that happens that on, on a regular basis is that we, we get every, I want to say, five, year, five, six years or so, we have a bunch of uh, ex-military officials and we have uh, former government officials. We have military pilots who go on and they say, well, I've seen some things in the night sky that I can't explain. Um, and a lot of times the unspoken assumption is they're aliens because they will say, well, we don't know if that's something that can be made by humans and we can't explain it in any way, shape or form. We're not saying it's aliens, but your best impression of Georgia Tsakalos, a.k.a. the aliens guy. Uh, now, in reality, what it would take for someone to see an actual alien craft in the skies of Earth would mean that there is a planet somewhere that's not too far away from us, so they could actually see and detect us, that evolved intelligence, that intelligence was curious enough and capable enough to decide to leave the planet and developed not just space travel, but interstellar space travel, and astronomy capable of understanding what worlds are alive and not, made the conscious decisions to come to Earth, and came to and come to Earth during the time that we are not really capable of visiting other planets ourselves and have to send robots and machines that are not very fast. None of these things by themselves are impossible. In fact, we think that it is statistically very likely that these that these sorts of things will happen. But taken all together, the probability is exceedingly, exceedingly low. It's just it's just not very likely at all. And then on top of that, uh, let's consider the fact that there's a lot of lights in the sky. There's a lot of satellites. There's a lot of reflective space junk. Um, there are natural phenomena that are fairly rare, but in certain atmospheric conditions, you get these weird lights and weird behaviors. And then on top of that, there are militaries that are experimenting with drones and aircraft designs that have very much perpetuated the ufo myth and basically said oh yeah yeah these are totally ufos there's no way that humans can build that if you ever see a b2 flying overhead at a military base and you didn't know that this is a thing that humans will build your first thought would be okay the alien invasion has started and this is one of the motherships and we are all screwed uh we should probably run and hide so that so all these things combined the likelihood is almost nil but but it would be kind of boring if we left it there let's push a little further and say what if what if we're actually visited by aliens what would that actually look like because it is important to think about it to see if we can actually identify it and there are some very interesting things that happen when you actually take it that far okay that makes sense by the way um like you would totally freak out if you saw that for the first time Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I know. Always, I, I was I thinking did. Back and to the I, Future. I was thinking of the movie I, Back to the Future when the DeLorean shows up in the past, 
everyone's like, whoa, it's kind of like that. I mean, I, I knew what the B2 was and how it was built, but still actually seeing one in real life was still actually pretty shocking for the first time. Yeah. So cool. with that in mind, let's, let's talk about what an actual alien aircraft would look like. And odds are it will probably be made of metals and materials that we don't really have or use on Earth. Like it would be fundamentally chemically different if we could actually get a hold of it. Uh, it would probably use a propulsion system that we would recognize, but would use it in ways that we wouldn't normally be able to build it uh, or wouldn't know how to how to properly build it. And then on top of that, let's consider the fact that what's going to happen is by the laws of physics, we would encounter alien craft in two ways. One, teeny tiny little drones that are sent across the stars at a very high speed because low mass means you can get it up to very high speeds without worrying too much about it. And we just get pelted by these tiny little robotic drones we probably wouldn't really even be able to notice to just fly by the planet and take as many images and as many readings as they possibly can and beam them back to the planet that sent them. The other, mm-hmm. we would be looking at a gigantic, something like a generation ship that would be bigger than all the aircraft carriers on Earth uh, by far. And that thing would probably have enough of a energy signature for us to be able to detect it because it would have to use uh, something like nuclear fission or nuclear fusion on a truly massive scale to go as far as it does. And not only that, you can't just put a closed system in space and expect things not to break down. So it would have resupply missions on top of that. You know, it would be an entire ecosystem coming to coming to us. So any emissary that would be big enough for us to notice means we are in huge trouble because there is a very very large alien presence parked in our solar system and if they can get between different planets imagine what happens if we accidentally piss them off <laughs> okay. yeah things not end well for us and then the other problem is well let's say that we that they haven't done anything and we have noticed them and we decide let's make contact okay who makes contact That's still a thing that we haven't really developed. We don't have a protocol for it. And then let's consider for a second. I know that, you know, we we talk about COVID all the time, but yes, let's talk. Let's let's consider how a lot of world leaders handled the COVID pandemic and the, the people who had trouble understanding that maybe not spreading your germs by wearing a mask's a mask and getting vaccinations when they come out. If if this is a struggle for them, can you imagine how they're going to tackle aliens? Yeah, they, I think they you're can't forgetting t- about Will Smith here, first of all. But yeah, well, okay, I get your point. We, we, we only have one Will Smith. We have to save him in case things go really, really badly. Okay. We also ben have Affleck. the we also have a Terminator. We also have a Terminator, and that is like plan Z. So we have to be very careful with our natural resources in this particular situation. I'm just talking about Fair contact. Enough. Fair enough. We have it. Yeah. So so I, I'm not really seeing a really good path towards, you know, first contact with aliens. Our best bet would be legislative Malone. Let's hope they don't do anything that is going to be too invasive. They're probably not going to be really interested in, you know, abducting and kidnapping us because, you know, we have data that they can just download and and have all the, you know, have pretty much all the information they're going to need. Um, So if we leave them alone, we hope that they eventually pass through the solar system and go away. That might be the best case scenario for us, the way that we are as a society right now. 
or is civilization. So so really, that's kind of where we are. If we do, if we see aliens, maybe not the best idea to you know start getting too excited and, and building big plans of how we're going to join the galactic federations. They're not going to let us in. We probably don't want to make a mess of things uh, in in when we introduce ourselves as well. Huh. How did they get? Like how did, how would an alien in your mind really get here though? Seriously, I mean. I mean, it's not like they're, yeah, I, I don't know. Can we even imagine it? How did they get here? Uh, we can absolutely imagine it. Uh, well, obviously, the easiest way is they have invented warp drives. And we talked about warp drives. They are extremely difficult to build. They are theoretically very complicated. Um, so it's not until we really understand how to make them work. Uh, we can't say that it, it's something that you know we can just go ahead and say, oh well, you know, if you're advanced enough, you can build a warp drive. It's not just a matter of energy requirements. It's some very complicated physics. But we do have designs for things like antimatter catalyzed nuclear fusion, where we essentially uh, you can fire lasers at gold leaf to produce uh, tiny little um, uh, tiny little anti electrons and annihilate those in, in the fusion reaction to give it an extra kick, and that should boost your ship to go a certain percentage of the speed of light. Um, and that will get you where you want to go, not very quickly, but consider that you know if you have a species that considers this a worthy enough undertaking, they might say, oh, well, we're fine spending 10, 20, 30, even 100 generations doing this. We're willing to make that investment. So it's just it really just a matter of determination. Uh, if you understand how to create nuclear reactions, if you understand how to create antimatter and harness the energy from from uh, annihilating that, if you can build ion drives, which you know we actually have built and have tested and have used on spacecraft, uh, you can absolutely get to another solar system with enough patience and and time. Huh. That's, That's actually all. not the difficult part. That's not the difficult <laughs> part. The difficult part is the actual logistics of supporting that mission because the farther you go from your home world, the more resources you're going to need and the more maintenance you're going to need to do. So that's where the whole resupply mission thing comes in. And there have been a lot of plans and ideas for humans to eventually do that. And thought has been, well, okay, well, if this these things break down in space, what, what do we actually do? Can we send help? And the more we think about it, the more it seems like, well, we are not going to have a choice. We're going to have to you know, send robots. We're going to have to send fresh crews. We're going to have to figure out how to create this entire ecosystem that branches out across the stars so it's going to be uh it's going to be a very large slow steady presence and that's another one of the reasons why it's probably not very likely that we're having a lot of alien visitations they're going to be burdened by the same rules we are unless they are themselves machines and even then they're still going to need to build uh another ecosystem and keep in mind that if we're going to actually meet aliens anytime soon there's a very high likelihood they're not the aliens themselves. They're they're rovers, they're satellites, they're machines, just like we're doing on Mars. Texture says, what about wormholes? Wormholes are always a great idea. Unfortunately, they are not very practical for travel because what happens with a wormhole is that they're kind of like the, the mouth of a wormhole is like the mouth of a black hole. You're not going to be annihilated if you pass through it. You will pop out somewhere else. But the question is exactly where you might not actually know until you get there. And there's not necessarily 
Uh, two-way travel is not necessarily guaranteed. And then on top of that, if you enter the wormhole wrong, if you do it at a wrong angle or a wrong velocity, it will actually rip you to shreds just like a black hole would. So it's just the, we know what's going to happen with the remains. They're going to get popped out on the other side. And we also don't know for how long they're stable. It's It really, unless you understand physics well enough to create warp drives, you're probably not going to be able to use a wormhole. Okay, fair enough. Um, do you really think that, um, do you believe now that aliens are here today? I don't. I can absolutely be persuaded, given a good piece of evidence, like show me some some crash site or show me something that is that looks like it was made by another intelligence. Uh, and, and we can analyze it and say that it's completely different from what we have from Earth, and I will absolutely believe you. But until I see that, I really would not believe that we're that we have alien visitation right now. That said, I do believe that there are definitely intelligent aliens out there because statistically, I mean, look at how big the universe is and look at how many planets there are and look at how many chances there is for life to evolve. It just seems inevitable that there are intelligent aliens out there I just don't know if we'll ever get a chance to meet them. That's that's really the crux of the problem. And I do also want to consider the fact that, you know, we still have the mystery of the wow signal where people have tried all sorts of different explanations for it. And that is the one signal that we have received where we're genuinely stumped and think this actually seems like something we would get from a snippet of communication by an intelligent species and we have no other way to explain it but unfortunately we have no other way to confirm it so i i really do think that there's life out there i just don't think that it's visiting us or is going to visit us anytime soon so then how do you explain these videos that are coming out of uh, your american government navy and all these uh, little uh looks like flying garbanzo beans okay i'm uh, gonna how do you explain them I'm going to preface that with a very heavy dose of this is my opinion. I don't know for a fact. I think they are probably top secret or experimental drones. But then why would they talk about them? They would probably talk about them either because they want to hide them by making it because they, they've actually have done this before. Like I said, with the B2, with the uh, with the F117 stealth bomber. Uh, with uh, the U-2, with um, a number of spy and interceptor planes that have been very heavily uh, tested around Area 51. They have talked about these weird lights and weird shapes in the sky and created this mystique that there's these, oh, like there's these UFOs and there's these weird things. And it's it's partially kind of like a PSYOPs campaign, uh, which pretty much every military does and, and every intelligence agency does. And the other part of it is they could not could be foreign drones. And there's that that whole air of mystery, like we genuinely don't know. And because there's not enough, com- because the information is very compartmentalized between different military departments, you'll always have somebody who goes to the press and says, hey, you won't believe what I saw. And all of a sudden, this ends up being a national story. Fair enough. Hiding in plain sight, if you will. Yeah, and or in in some cases, it's it's just you know we're looking at brand new experimental technology that is the true owners would like to remain unknown, and they may not be American. You know, China is doing a lot of very advanced things with drones. There may be other countries that are doing a lot of very advanced things with drones. 
I mean, honestly, we don't know if Canada is doing something advanced with drones because you because Canada has all the facilities to manufacture all sorts of very sophisticated stuff. It just gets sold to other countries for weapon components. Uh, Canada bought submarines that leaked that were used. We're not big on technology. Like, you know, the jokes about submarines with screen doors. Yeah, that's Canada. That's what we did. Well, so you're 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 good at making the different parts for some reason you're not very good at actually purchasing the stuff that works and i don't know why that is because you make the stuff that's crucial for the stuff that actually works that that's that let's let's talk about that mystery yeah that's, that's a mystery. easier to solve than like, aliens if you're gonna buy an airplane the very first thing you say is so does it fly right like when you're buying something that goes underwater one of the first things you should be asking is so does it leak i mean these are things that matter greg fish the world of weird things.com thanks for being here a couple nights in a row buddy appreciate it always a pleasure thanks for listening to the shift podcast make sure you subscribe rate and review the show and share with anyone you like get it on apple podcast google podcast spotify and curious cast.ca